Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The West was once seen as a beacon of opportunity, and it still is a place where many ways of life can flourish. But it's also a region that leaves some people isolated, both culturally and geographically. That's David Kennedy from his foreword to a collection of essays titled Bridging the Distance, Common Issues of the Rural West. The book is edited by Professor David Danbaum. It's published by University of Utah Press. And in four sections, Defining the Rural West, Community, Economy, and Land Use, the authors highlight factors that set the region apart from the rest of the country and consider the challenges faced by those living in often remote areas, including the shortcomings of rural health care, disagreements about the use of natural resources, conflicts over water, and cultural divides within communities. David Danbaum is Fargo Chamber of Commerce Distinguished Professor Emeritus at North Dakota State University, where he taught for 36 years. He's authored six books, most recently Born in the Country, A History of Rural America, and Sod Busting, How Families Made Farms on the 19th Century Plains. We welcome in uh, David Danbaum to the program. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm pleased to be with you today. And I should say that uh, this uh, collection of essays is based on papers presented in an October 2012 conference, which happened in Ogden here in Utah, sponsored by the Bill Lane Center for American West at Stanford uh, University. So a Utah connection, and there's, of course, a lot in this book about Utah. We're smack dab in the rural West. Uh, I want to start with identity. One of the sections in the book is uh, how how we define the rural West. I'll I'll just quote you uh, uh, here, Professor Danbaum, uh, you say that uh, rural Westerners themselves define the region by what it gives them as individuals and families, a sense of place, a familiar landscape, close and sustaining human communities, and most of all, an identity. What do you talk a bit about that identity? Well, you know, I think that uh, when we look at the rural West from the outside, it, there is so much variety that it is difficult to uh, indicate that there's a unity here, that there's anything that really holds things together. But I think what the identity means is that if you identify with the region, if you think of yourself as a Westerner, and more importantly, if you think of yourself as a rural person, uh, then you are one. That you, In some sense, you can define yourself. A lot of the aspects of the rural West are aspects of any rural community, um, face-to-face relationships, um, comfort, uh, familiarity, and identity with the landscape. Um, Those are things that are also true in the South or in New England or any other part of the country that has rural uh, areas to it. Uh, But I think that identity, that sense of shared history, shared purpose, shared landscape, um, regardless of any other factors, is probably the most important. That resonates with me. I, I live in a, it's not a rural area, it's, I mean, it's not huge here in Logan, um, but it wouldn't be considered rural, I don't think. But uh, one of my grandfathers uh, was a farmer in Hinkley in western Utah. I grew up in Vernal, uh, you know, still considered a pretty rural uh, area, and so that's part of my identity. I, I think of myself in those terms. Yeah, and I think that's uh, one of the things John Locke, who's one of our authors in that first section on uh, defining the rural West, it's one of the things he really emphasizes is identity, uh, comfort with the landscape, comfort with the culture, 
comfort with the people. And even if you move away, you still have that sense, I think. And there's a paradox here, and I, you know, I, I think we all of us have a vague sense of this. Um, the West has been one of the most urbanized of America's four major regions since the 1880s. So there is a paradox, and, and uh, David Kennedy treats this in his foreword. The West is now the most urban region as well as the most rural region. In terms of space, it's definitely the most rural. Um, but in terms of population, it's the most urban. And I think it's been the most urban, really, since the late 19th century. Um, but if you, if you ask... Uh, people in other parts of the country, what their image of the West is, it's almost a rural image, almost always a rural image. It's uh, wide open spaces, uh, maybe the Marlboro Man on his horse, you know, it's very seldom Denver or Salt Lake City, let alone San Francisco or Los Angeles, even though they are all parts of the West. And as you write in uh, one of the introductions to one of the sections, Defining the Rural West, um, plenty of people have a mental picture of the rural West. One of those is uh, perhaps driving in central Nevada or eastern Wyoming, where one can drive for miles without seeing an occupied dwelling or even another car. Uh, or it could be, you know, Napa Valley or Park City. That's that's right. It's a lot of different yeah, things. Those are, yeah, those are technically certainly parts of the rural West. Um, and again, you know, this is a region with tremendous, uh, tremendous variety. Um Park City, Aspen, uh, Sun Valley, those are parts of the rural west, certainly. Uh, Zion is part of the rural west, um, but so are these wide open spaces, uh, which don't have many people living in them. Um, I want to take you back to uh, uh, where a lot of this always begins, Frederick Jackson Turner. 1893, Chicago World's Ferry steps to the microphone and, and issues one of the most famous papers in in our history. And he talked about the fact that the frontier was just about over, and he wondered what was going to happen to America because, as he saw it, this idea of frontier, always pushing the frontier, had defined us, had, had defined our character as a nation. Yes, that was his, uh, his emphasis. He certainly believed that... Um very American values, such as a belief in democracy, belief in liberty, self-government, um, a rough equality among among uh, citizens, that uh, these were all characteristics that came out of the frontier. And he worried about whether we would lose those when the frontier went away. One of the kind of interesting factors to me um, about... Uh, Turner's thinking and what has happened since that time is uh, that there are lots of areas of the rural West um, that have, by census definition, become frontier again. Uh, the census defined uh, a frontier as any area with fewer than two people per square mile. And when I lived in North Dakota for many years, every census we'd have more counties that had fewer than two people per square mile. Um, since that time, they've had the oil boom in North Dakota, and that's really uh, changed the population profile of the state quite a bit. Uh, but there are lots of areas in the in the rural West, uh, which by census definition really are still frontiers, still definition that Frederick Jackson Turner used in 1893. 
Do you think that definition of or that idea of Turner's? Do you think it still uh, is important to us that the, this uh, that we're defined by frontier? Uh, I don't. Um, it, it was such a great thing at the time, um, such a, a great formulation, uh, mainly because it, it turned what historians believed at the time on its head. Uh, historians uh, argued, uh, based on the fact that many of them had German PhDs, that uh, Germany was was the birthplace of democracy, that uh, democracy came out of the forests of Germany, as they used to put it. Um, and what uh, Turner said was, no, that's not true. Uh, democracy came out of the American frontier. And he put the United States at the heart of the story. And that was an important thing, and I think that's why his formulation became so popular. Um, I don't know that you need to have a frontier to have democracy, uh, or to have liberty, or to have a belief in equality. Um, certainly those traits, to some degree, characterize the frontier, not to every degree. Um, but I think our history, uh, over the last 125 years or so, indicates that there's not necessarily a cause-and-effect relationship here. What do you make of the fact that you stated just a couple minutes ago that... Uh part of the West is becoming more rural. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think the the reality is that there are parts of the West that are very attractive to uh, amenity-seeking residents. Um, areas in the Rockies, certainly that's the case. Um, here in Colorado, I live in Colorado now on, on the Front Range, over 100,000 people have moved into the mountains along the Front Range uh, just in the last 15 years. And there are people who telecommute or even commute into Denver or Fort Collins or Colorado Springs or some city like that to work. Um, but they're up there because they like the surroundings, they like the amenities. Uh, when I lived in North Dakota, people moved out 30 or 40 miles from Fargo and then commuted into Fargo to work. But there are areas that are too distant from major centers. Um, again, eastern Wyoming would be an example. Um, much of the Great Basin of the northern Nevada would be an example. That you're just too far away. And given the realities of the natural resource economy now, of ranching and mining and lumbering, uh, it's very difficult to make a living in some of these more isolated communities. So as uh, younger people move off, go to school, uh, they don't come back. And eventually you have that population falling, uh, sometimes below that frontier line. Yeah, there are many communities that does resonate to it. You know, it's an issue in Utah as well. Some communities just don't have the jobs to keep their young people. That's right, and that's one of the challenges that uh, some of our authors addressed. Um, David Rich Lewis from uh, University of Utah talked about the Goshute uh, Indians of Skull Valley, 
and how they attempted to get a, a nuclear waste uh, storage site uh, because there basically was nothing else they could do to keep people on the reservation and to maintain their viability and to maintain their culture. They thought they had to take this step, but there simply weren't amenities there that would attract people otherwise, so they had to figure out uh, something to do. Another uh, interesting article in our collection is by uh, Michael Hibbert and Susan Lurie, and it's about what they call the new natural resources economy, which involves figuring out ways to use the natural resources that are available to you, but in a different, um, uh, less damaging way. So instead of large-scale lumbering, you have more small-scale lumbering and uh, making of wood pellets or uh, things of that sort, um, restoring the salmon habitat. Uh, these are some of the things that they talk about in their study of uh, rural communities in Oregon. Uh, again, using what you have, natural resources, but using them in a different way because you can't count on large-scale mining, large-scale lumbering to come back to a lot of these communities. And as you mentioned, uh, some areas do have an influx. Uh, that can sometimes lead to conflict, can it? Newcomers clashing with the old-timers. Often, uh, you know, economic sources of income are different, and ideas about land use are different, and sometimes it's cultural differences. Yes, that's absolutely the case. There's one uh, piece in, uh, in this collection by J. Dwight Hines, um, about a cultural clash, especially focuses on Georgetown Lake in Montana. Uh, this is an artificial impoundment that was built to provide irrigation water for uh, farmers and ranchers in the region. Uh, over the last 20, 25 years, large numbers of uh, amenity-seeking residents have moved in, people who are able to work from a distance or people who are retired um, and have uh, wealth. And so there was a conflict over the lake because the ranchers and farmers in using their irrigation rights would draw the lake down. It would be less attractive to the people who lived on the lake and also less attractive to tourists who would come to fish. And so the new amenity-seeking residents <clears throat> along with the businesses that serve them and serve tourists, uh, we're able to get the uh, county commission to diminish the water flow so that the lake would retain its, uh, its attractiveness through the summer. And the losers in that turned out to be the farmers and ranchers who were longtime residents there. One of the conflicts is, is in the headlines right now, and that is... The, uh, the farmers and ranchers, ranchers especially, who have used public lands, as the federal government has moved over in recent years to, toward uh, multi-use, um, some of those uh, ranchers have felt left out. Uh, there's been a conflict. And right now there's a standoff in Oregon. Some of the couple of sons of Clive and Bundy from, from Nevada are uh, occupying a building up in uh, on a wildlife refuge up there. 
Um, you have a couple of there are a couple of essays in the in the book, I believe, talking about the this particular type of conflict. Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I was thinking about that when this uh, Oregon standoff began. There's one essay by uh, <clears throat> Liesl Childers. Uh, it focuses on one branching family in southern Nevada called the Fellinis. Uh, and the Fellinis, uh, for years, did not own much land, but they uh, grazed their cattle on um, land that wasn't being used for anything else. Um, they, they acquired water rights on this land, um, and they began to have trouble with the government. In fact, uh, the troubles dated back to World War II, when the government uh, built a bombing range on or declared part of the land to be a bombing range so they could no longer safely put their cattle on that area. Uh, then after World War II, the government began testing atomic weapons nearby, uh, which also uh, caused problems with them. They had fallout. Uh, some of their neighbors, uh, they believed, contracted cancer as a result of this. Um in more recent years, they've had increasing challenges from the Bureau of Land Management. Um, challenges of two sorts, really. One is what you mentioned, Tom, which is uh, the multi-use idea. Uh, this land can be used for recreation as well as for raising cattle. Uh, but even though theoretically there isn't any conflict between these two, uh, in practice, often there is uh, conflict between recreational use and, and economic use, like cattle ranching. Um, <clears throat> and the other challenge they've had is from environmentalists, uh, in the case especially involving the wild horse herds in the region, which compete with their cattle for forage and for water. Um, but environmentalists would like to protect those horse herds um, and the ranchers no longer have uh, basically carte blanche to do whatever they want with them. So that, you know, in, in some ways that, uh, that really dovetails uh, very effectively with what's going on in Oregon right now and, and the sources of some of that conflict there. And uh, the, the background here, and I think maybe Easterners may not remember this, I think it's the percentage is 80% of land in Nevada is owned by the federal government. It's around 60% or so in Utah and, and Idaho. That's that's a big part of the background for for a lot of this conflict, I believe. That uh, some people, you know, want that returned, made made private, or or at least to a government closer to them, the state, and it exacerbates the conflict. Yes, that's. Uh that's definitely a reality that uh, much of the land is still owned by the federal government. And as you say, the vast majority of the land in Nevada certainly is, and large parts of Utah, Idaho, and really all the states uh, of the West have substantial lands that are held by the federal government. And historically, uh, the federal government has been a fairly easy landlord, but as the federal government has come under more pressure uh, from recreationists, as it's come under more pressure from uh, tourist-oriented businesses, 
Um, as it's come under more pressure from environmentalists, uh, we've seen more and more of these conflicts, and the people who traditionally had a very uh, friendly and, if you will, easy relationship with the federal government when it came to timbering on federal lands or mining on federal lands or grazing cattle on federal lands, um, suddenly they find the relationship is not as uh, not as uh, attractive to them anymore as it used to be. Um, and sometimes, you know, you have uh, the federal government doing things that uh, tourist-oriented uh, people are not happy with. For example, uh, here in Colorado, where I live now, the Bureau of Land Management uh, has given out leases for fracking in uh, South Park, which is an area here in the state in the mountains. And uh, the federal action has been opposed, first by the city of Aurora, because the city of Aurora draws much of its water from Spinney Reservoir, near where the fracking will take place, uh, but also from uh, Park County, because Park County depends heavily on tourism, uh, they depend on fishermen coming to reservoirs like Spinney, and they're worried about water quality, but also worried about the aesthetics. So you have a lot of uh, cross pressures going in regard to these public lands. I believe you, you uh, it's either you or one of the authors here, um, has expressed a bit of skepticism that multi-use can even be accomplished to the satisfaction, at least, of everyone. And we've seen that play out. Yeah, I don't know that it can be. Um, multi-use is a nice idea in theory because it gives everything to everybody, and who wouldn't like that? Um, but in practice, it just isn't, uh, just doesn't work out that well. Uh, you see it especially, or another area where you see it is uh, with reservoirs. You know, reservoirs are built in the West, and they're promised to, to do all sorts of things. They're going to provide irrigation water. They're going to provide drinking water. They're going to provide hydroelectric power. They're going to provide recreation. Uh, but there are going to be conflicts between irrigation users and power users and fishermen and boaters um, that nobody really thinks about, or at least they don't talk about it, when these projects are in the planning stage. So do you think... Conflicts are just, would you predict conflicts would just continue and maybe in, increase? Certainly there is a reservoir, I don't know how large, of discontent, anger, that we're, be, we're seeing uh, tapped now in that Oregon standoff. Uh, I think the conflicts will continue. And I think there's really been conflict over land in uh, the West forever. The initial conflict, when you think about it, was um, between European Americans coming in and the Native Americans who were here. Uh, but even before that, there were conflicts over resources uh, among Native American groups. Part of this is just human nature. And we have a tendency to say, well, this, this is really new. But I don't think it is new. I think it's, it's just part of uh, being human. Um, let's uh, let's take a, a break, 
Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, talk about uh, a couple more issues in in the Royal West. One of those very interesting, uh, Jeff McGee has written a very interesting essay here about, uh, he points out much of the West can be defined by what it lacks. One of the most important things, he says, that needs to be solved is access to broadband, access to the Internet. Um, there's another essay talking about uh, media and small-town newspaper. Judy Mueller uh, has an essay titled Too Close for Comfort, When Big Stories Hit Small Towns. We'll talk uh, about more of the issues uh, of the rural West. The book is Bridging the Distance, Common Issues of the Rural West. The editor is David Danbaum, who has joined us for the program. More following the break. This is Science by the Slice. Adventurous diners of pufferfish know that the food's intoxicating tingle comes from tetrodotoxin, a potent neurotoxin that's deadly beyond small doses. North American garter snakes have evolved an amazing resistance to the lethal substance, which is found in one of their favorite meals, the California newt. USU biologist Butch Brody and his students are investigating the genetic basis for this example of coevolution. They're exploring the genetic basis of adaptation and the molecular processes that lead to evolutionary changes. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are uh, looking at issues common to the rural West. We've talked about how the West is defined, that sense of identity. The book is Bridging the Distance, Common Issues of the Rural West. It's based on uh, papers presented at an October 2012 conference, which happened in Ogden, sponsored by the Bill Lane Center for the American West at Stanford University. This book is published by University of Utah Press. And we have with us the editor, David Danbaum is Fargo Chamber of Commerce Distinguished Professor Emeritus at North Dakota State University, where he taught for uh, 36 years. Professor Denbaum, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about Jeff McGee's uh, essay. Very interesting. He points out, first of all, uh, in his view, the West can be defined by what it lacks. He lists a few things, uh, most important of which, he says, is, is access to the Internet, broadband access. Yes, this is a really a wonderful essay, I think and a very thoughtful essay. Uh, <clears throat> Jeff points, uh, as you say, uh, suggests that you can define the West not just by what it has, but what it hasn't or what it lacks. Um, access to libraries, access to retail centers, um, access to medical care, even access to post offices. Um, these are things that are lacking in much of the rural West. But what Jeff really focuses on especially is um, availability or lack of availability of uh, effective and reliable broadband service, uh, much of which he thinks derives from the fact that uh, there's been too much dependence on private providers who find it expensive to provide that service in in uh, sparsely populated areas, um, as opposed to uh, co-ops or the government or something of that sort. Um, 
a parallel would be electricity when electricity was uh, offered to the rural west and rural america generally uh, urban america was already electrified and had been for a while and that put urban america ahead of rural america so when electricity was finally offered it was done through the rural electric administration uh, which provided uh, <clears throat> loans for the creation of co-ops to provide uh, electricity and, uh, you know, Jeff makes the point, I think, that if you don't have effective broadband service, uh, you're really behind the curve in modern America. Um, and catching up is going to be difficult. And this doesn't only affect individuals who want to be on Facebook or something like that. It also affects businesses, because businesses throughout the country now are uh, overwhelmingly dependent on internet service, and economic development in the rural west certainly depends on broadband service that's effective and reliable. Um, just as is the case with students, or uh, you know, who are preparing for their careers or preparing for college, uh, and individuals. Um, so this this was an extremely important essay. I thought. I just want to quote a portion of this. Um, essay by Jeff McGee. Um, he, uh, he quotes a uh, KQED public media blog, Mindshift. Uh, they profiled Matt Aiken, superintendent of a rural school district in Alabama. They purchased e-readers for students for use at home. And then uh, Mr. Aiken reports, late one night when he was leaving the middle school, he saw students sit- sitting on the steps of the school trying to use its internet. And it turned out that enough students lacked internet access at home. The district uh, had to arrange to spend $10,000 a month to support mobile internet hotspots. And he, Mr. Aiken says, spurted, he says that um, it's really not fair to say this homework requires internet access, but if you don't have it, go to McDonald's. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty stark illustration of the, of the problem. It really is. I, it, it's very tough in modern America to get along without effective internet service. Uh, one of the answers, and I think this is one that Jeff mentions too, is to have uh, community broadband, have the, the community itself uh, provide broadband service. Uh, in the town where I live now, Loveland, Colorado, uh, we're not rural by any means, about 65,000 people here. But <clears throat> the voters uh, this fall, this last fall, uh, just voted to have the community provide uh, broadband service. Uh, because they think it will be better and more universal than uh, what they're presently getting from uh, the cable provider. And you know, this is one answer. But there are political complications to that. I mean, for one thing, it's it can be expensive, but the other major political complication is that in some states um, it's illegal to do this, and you will always have... Uh, severe resistance from uh, the people in the cable companies who do not want the government competition. And it, and it's inevitably it's going to come down to money, isn't it? Inevitably, it does. Just about everything does. Yeah, I just and want this to. It's a big problem in the rural West. I mean, not only do you have a sparse population, uh, but you have uh, median incomes that uh, most areas are below median incomes in 
in urban areas. Uh, so it's it's a complicated problem. And in a sense, it's an old problem in rural areas. Uh, I just wanted to read this another, just to underline the point again. Um, this is from an FCC um, report on rural broadband. Um, as long as a grade school child living on a farm cannot research a science project, or a high school student living on a remote Indian reservation cannot submit a college application, or an entrepreneur in a rural hamlet cannot order spare parts, or a local law enforcement officer cannot download pictures of a missing child without traveling to a city or town that has broadband internet access, we cannot turn back from these uh, challenges. Um, this made me think of something that... Um, I believe Mr. Kennedy, uh, Professor Kennedy, uh, quoted in his foreword, um, if I can find this uh, quickly, uh, quotes Australian historian Jeffrey Blaney. Uh, he used the phrase, the tyranny of distance. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting phrase, uh, and, and I think in, in some cases very apt, the tyranny of distance. Yeah, it is an apt phrase, you know, and, and we think that Distance has been obliterated because, of course, we all have automobiles now and the roads are pretty good in the West. And so, you know, if you live 75 miles from Salt Lake, you can get in there in in an hour or maybe a little over an hour. Or if you live on the eastern plains of Colorado, 100 miles from Denver, you're just an hour and a half away. You know, maybe your grandparents got to Denver... uh, you know, once a year, and you can get to Denver every couple of weeks if you want to, or more than that. Um, but in other ways, uh, the tyranny of distance remains in ways that perhaps are less visible, and uh, this uh, ability to be tied into the web, uh, this ability to enjoy broadband service is an excellent example of that. Um, it's uh, the modern equivalent to being stuck with horses and, and dirt roads. By the way, um, this is an Australian historian, Jeffrey Blaney. Made me wonder, I'll ask you, I don't know if you know uh, anything about Australian you know, rural issues, but I, I wonder if there, there are similarities and differences in the rural issues in America versus Australia. Australia has some wide open spaces, of course, and that's, I'm sure, why they you know, study some issues of, of rural Australia. Would some of the issues be the same? Oh, I think they probably are. I think, you know, there are other places certainly where that that might be the case as well. But Australia has, you know, what they call the outback, which is uh, what we in the United States, I guess, would call the big empty, maybe. Um, Areas where there isn't a lot of population, uh, where most people depend on raising cattle or sheep or something of that sort. And certainly there are other places in the world where that's the case, too. Um, much of Asia, much of you know, Mongolia, Siberia, uh, are other places where this is a, a situation they would certainly understand. Um, much of Canada also fits that situation. And, you know, they have the same challenges. They address them in different ways, depending on their culture and their traditions. Uh, but I think the, the problems of distance are always there. 
Let's take another break. When we come back, more with uh, Professor David Danbaum. Uh, he is editor of Bridging the Distance, Common Issues of the Rural West. It's a new uh, collection out from University of Utah Press. When we come back, I uh, wanted to get into small-town newspapers that I referenced before. Also, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt assembled, I learned this reading this book, a report, a commission in 1909, the Country Life Commission, and it seems like some of the same issues are, are with us uh, with us today. We'll talk about that following the break. Hi, I'm Rachel Giza. Concussion is a new dramatic movie that tackles the controversial subject of head injuries in the NFL. Coming up, former professional football player Nate Jackson will give us his review of the film. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us Tuesday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. There are lots of places to hear classical music, but no other place that keeps you in touch with the vitality and creativity of today's classical scene. Thrilling concerts of the great works from all around the world, fascinating musical discoveries, and interviews with today's top artists. I'm Fred Child. Join me for APM's Performance Today. Join us Tuesday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the rural West. There's a collection of essays out. It's called Bridging the Distance, Common Issues of the Rural West, uh, treating such uh, problems as shortcomings in rural health care, disagreements about the use of natural resources, conflicts over water, and cultural divides within uh, communities. And we're talking with the editor of this volume, David Danbaum, who is Fargo Chamber of Commerce Distinguished Professor Emeritus at North Dakota State University, where he taught for 36 years. He's now living in Colorado, where we have reached him. You're welcome to join the conversation, if you'd like, at 1-800-826-1495. And our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Professor Danbaum, uh, several of the authors here make reference to a, uh, a report, a commission put together by President Theodore Roosevelt, the Country Life Commission. They reported in 1909. Why don't you tell us a bit about the Country Life Commission? Uh, yes. Um, Theodore Roosevelt was one of those people. He wasn't uh, the only one. Um, but he was one of those people who was concerned in the early 20th century that... Uh, countryside was falling behind urban America. And one of the symptoms of that was that rural areas were losing population, urban areas were getting greater population, and the fear that the people who were most likely to leave rural areas were the best and brightest young people, and that that did not bode well for the future of rural America. Uh, so, Roosevelt created this commission uh, to study the issue and suggest uh, solutions for rural problems. And uh, some of the some of the solutions he uh, uh, the commission came up with, uh, as you indicated earlier, Tom, um, seem very modern to us. Um, better schools, um, better churches more amenities for rural people, uh, running water, electricity, 
those uh, modern things that urban people came to expect but rural people still didn't have. And their belief was this would hold population in rural areas. Uh, the best and brightest would stop leaving and would stay, and the future of rural America would be bright. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, as, as authors pointed out, you, you talked about that a lot of the same issues remain. Uh, yeah, a lot of the same issues do remain. You know, there's still problems of sparse population. There's still problems in a lot of areas of depopulation. Um, when I taught in, in North Dakota, so many of our students came from rural North Dakota, and they viewed college as a means of getting out. So did their parents. They also viewed college as a means of getting out uh, and moving on to something better. Um, <clears throat> so I don't think those problems have gone away. Uh, they're a little different. Uh, in those days, they talked about school consolidation. Now we talk about uh, broadband service. But I think uh, the general problems continue to continue to exist. I want to talk about uh, one of the sections talks about community. And this, of course, is why a lot of people love living in, in rural communities, uh, a sense of, uh, you know, a tight-knit community. Um, but what happens, and there's, a, there's an essay by Judy Mueller, what happens when there's an incident that threatens to tear apart the community, also a need for leadership in these communities, as you've pointed out. What if you tell us a little bit about this? The, the chapter is uh, titled, Too Close for Comfort, When Big Stories Hit Small Towns. This is, was a hazing incident in the wrestling team, uh, a town, I think, uh, graduating class of 12 or something in Colorado. Yeah, this is... Uh, um uh, Judy Muller, uh, who was a network journalist for many years, um, is uh, is from this little town, uh, Norwood, Colorado, which is uh, near Telluride. But while Telluride is uh, a big ski center and um, very popular with the beautiful people, uh, Norwood remains uh, a ranching community, which it has always been. And this involves... Uh, a hazing scandal in the public in the public high school uh, and the wrestling team, where uh, three members of the wrestling team uh, hazed a younger boy uh, in an incident that may or may not have uh, involved some uh, uh, sexual aspect, which is uh, remains unclear, and. Uh, <clears throat> The boy's parents complained. Um, the newspaper really ignored the whole thing. The local newspaper ignored the whole thing. It was eventually picked up by the Telluride newspaper and by uh, television stations in Grand Junction, which is a major city in the western slope in Colorado. Um, and it became very embarrassing to the town. So it ultimately forced the town to confront the fact that hazing had been a reality and a problem, and bullying had been a reality and a problem in their schools for many years. Um, and what Judy really talks about here is the difficulty of <clears throat> local newspapers in serving the community by exposing these problems, because the local editors part of the community 
uh, he or she uh, wants to protect the community, believes in the community, and also doesn't want to lose advertising, um, doesn't want to be shunned at the grocery store by neighbors, and bringing up uh, flaws in a community um, frequently have that that result. Um, and, you know, as, as Judy also suggests, um, a big problem here is leadership. Um, who's going to take the bull by the horns and say, okay, we have to face that this is a problem and it's a problem we have to deal with. It may embarrass us, embarrass us a little bit to admit that, but this is still something we have to confront. Uh, it's a very interesting case study, I think, Tom, and I think you're right about that. And it, it did take outside media, right? The Telluride paper picked it up. Eventually it hit the Huffington Post, although there were some complaints, there were some inaccuracies in, in that reporting. Um and eventually, a, a new editor of the Norwood Post did write a strong editorial, took, took I guess, as a leadership stance there. Yeah, eventually they did. Um, the, uh, the people, there were some people in Norwood who wanted this issue addressed uh, instead of being papered over and really wanted the bigger problem behind it addressed instead of being papered over. And... <clears throat> They were the ones who eventually went to the Telluride paper because they weren't having any success uh, in Norwood getting the small newspaper there. Of course, it's just a weekly uh, and really uh, just a two or three page, uh, two or four page, I guess it'd have to be, uh, newspaper uh, at that. Uh, but uh, the Norwood paper simply, editor wasn't simply, it simply wasn't. Uh, willing to address it, so they went to the Telluride paper. And when Telluride, uh, the Telluride newspaper printed it, this made people in Norwood even more defensive because, you know, they they sort of looked on Telluride as a city of rich outsiders who would always look down on them. And this was just another example of Telluride looking down on them. So, you know, this is another one of those culture clashes on several levels, really, that we see in the West. Uh, I need to correct myself here. It, it appeared in Bloomberg.com, you know, nationally first, and then went to Denver, Denver Post, Huffington Post, even Daily Mail Online, United Kingdom. And, and as you, Judy Muller, uh, highlights, uh, very difficult to uh, be a small-town editor and uh, be seen as attacking certain institutions or even individuals in a town when you're shopping the same place, you're going to the same elementary school. You're, there's there's no distance there. There's it's a tight knit community. That's that's some pressure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a lot easier to be a crusading editor in in Salt Lake or in Denver or San Francisco than it is in Norwood. That's for sure. Um, I want to uh, we just have a couple minutes left. I want to treat this uh, the Go Shoot Skull Valley. Uh, Indian Reservation and and their desire to uh, get some money for the for the tribe, but you know economic development through what was seen by many in Utah. And I will remember this case: um, importing radioactive waste. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, David Rich Lewis from uh, Utah State University um, did the essay here, uh, and uh, he really gets inside the 
and uh, I think presents the side of the um, of the ghost shoots better than perhaps was reported at the time. Um, as the as the head of the ghost shoots, I think his name is Leon Bear said, um, you know, we, we we've always been marginalized, and uh, no one in Utah is you know is going to have our economic interests at heart, and it seemed like throughout the whole episode that that was borne out. That that the biggest yeah, concern yeah. was preventing the nuclear waste. It, it wasn't uh, helping out the ghost shoots with their economic development. Yeah, I think uh, there are a couple things that David Rich Lewis does extremely well in this essay. I really like this essay a lot. Um, one thing he does really well, I think, is to indicate that the ghost shoots themselves were divided on this issue. Um, that there was a question of will this destroy our culture or will this perpetuate our culture? And Leon Baer and the people who who wanted the waste dump said, well, you know, this is a way we can survive. And there are only 30 people living on the reservation. Uh, most of the uh, Skull Valley ghost shoots were living somewhere else. This would allow those people to come back. Um, but there were opponents, even among the ghost shoots, said, well, uh, our divine, uh, our divine mission uh, is to save the land. Just, uh, that that is at the whole heart of our culture, and this is not appropriate for that. Uh, and I think uh, Lewis does an excellent job on that. I think he also does an excellent job in highlighting uh, the hypocrisy of the state, uh, which uh, was quite happy to have. Uh, hazardous waste and nuclear waste in other places, um, but drew the line when it came to the, the go shoots um, and was not willing to accept this as a sort of economic development that was appropriate uh, and fought it on a variety of levels, certainly on the state level, uh, but also the federal level. And between these two factors, the cultural conflict within tribe and the political conflict in the state, uh, it didn't end up getting done. So the Goshutes are still in the position Leon Baird said they were in. Uh, they're still marginal. And that, that is a key word, isn't it? Marginal. And th- this is not by choice. And, you know, a lot of people in the rural West have moved there or their ancestors moved there and they love that particular plot of land. The Goshutes uh, epitomize the, the fact that many of these tribes were pushed to these marginal lands, um, and so they're not there by choice. No, they aren't there by choice, but now it is theirs, and, and they identify with it, too. And that, you know, that again was, was part of the opposition among uh, some of the Goshutes themselves to this, that, you know, the Skull Valley was home. Uh, this is a landscape which they're familiar with. This is a landscape that they need to be stewards of, and they need to save it. Uh, and that was the fear on the part of, of Bear's opposition within the tribe. The fear was we're not going to be able to do that with this sort of economic development. Only just about a minute left. Um, is We've outlined a lot of problems here and noted that some of the same problems from 1909 persist. Are, are there one or two solutions that have presented themselves in these papers that you might highlight? Um, well, solutions are hard. Uh, 
and they're not really satisfying to everybody involved. Um, I think there certainly are things that can be done that would ha- would help the rural west. I think Jeff McGee <clears throat> points out the importance of modern technology in that regard. I think Judy Muller points out the importance of leadership uh, in rural communities. This was always my experience, too, in North Dakota, was the communities that had get-up-and-go um, always had leaders who were willing to, to come in and, and do what needed to be done. Uh, but you don't just snap your fingers and create leaders. Um, they have to rise organically out of the community itself. Um, there are other things, uh, like uh, relative lack of health care, that might be addressed. It's conceivable they could be addressed. They haven't been addressed to this point. Uh, but some of these things, like cultural clashes, uh, it just seems to me, as I said earlier, um, a lot of this is part of human nature, and we just have to live with it. I think it would help if, uh, you know, if, if people were more tolerant of each other and more tolerant of each other's opinions. Um, that would certainly help, but I don't think uh, the cultural clashes are ever really going to go away. Well, and we'll, some of this is playing out right now. We'll see how the uh, standoff ends in, in Oregon, for example. Uh, interesting book, Bridging the Distance, Common Issues of the Rural West. The editor is David Danbaum, who has joined us for the program. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Tom. I enjoyed it. And uh, join us tomorrow. We're going to talk about New Year's resolutions. A lot of us set them, and uh, you know, within a month or two, we've uh, discarded them. We're going to talk about how to keep our New Year's resolutions That's tomorrow on the program. Hope you join me. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. The time now is 10 o'clock.